Arzi, you know, sometimes when you drive around for a living, the things you see in this area and just around, I could write a book. But to the gentleman who installed an LED scrolling sign in his back window to let me know that 9-11 was an inside job and that the government is coming after me and that masks are useless, to go to that extent, I just got to give you a quick clap because even if you're bat poop crazy, like clearly this individual is, suspending an LED scrolling sign to inform me and everyone that 9-11 was an inside job and the government is tracking us and everything. I just think good for you because you obviously believe this quite a bit if you're going to install a scrolling sign in the back window of your car. That is next level conspiratorial. And honestly, you are going to great lengths to share your conspiracy i'm not even gonna call it anything but that with a as wide an audience as you possibly can i just think for that person to believe so full-heartedly in anything to do that like you know there's a lot of things i believe in i don't know if i'd suspend a scrolling electric sign in the back window of my car it's impressive i saw one of those and i'm gonna forget what the name of the organization is but it's still around so you could google it it's the group that is advocating for and i don't think they're as out of line, they're, they're nowhere near as out of line as the guy you're just talking about, but they're, they're advocating. <laughs> I'm not sure many for, are, Mike. <laughs> good point. They're advocating for higher speed limits on the 400 series of highways. This is even yes. before we got to the few 110s that are out there. I think it's called stop100.ca or something like that. Anyway, you could Google it if you want to, but I saw a, a person who I can only assume was associated with said organization driving around and they had the, just the website scrolling constantly on this LED screen in the back window of their vehicle. And I'm a guy that's actually pretty open to the argument of, you know, we know our roads are engineered to carry traffic at a faster speed. Why are we bothering with a hundred and stuff? But to me though, it, it smacks of like, that can't be legal. Can it? I don't think so. Right. Like there's no way. No, I I couldn't see it in his back window. It was all a sign. And, And so it's not, it's not even the messaging that I'm saying needs to be banned or or there has to be a charge it's it's because you have something that is incredibly distracting to the drivers around you and in this guy's case certainly it's something that's impeding his rear view although we could get into the conversation of whoever looks in their rear view mirror and have a whole other podcast i think because nobody does by the way i do all the time um my biggest thing was it's distracting other drivers because i wanted to hang behind him just to find out what else this sign was gonna say Absolutely. i'm like first thing that pops up is 9-11 was an inside job and i'm like okay let's see what else this guy thinks like i want to get into the mind of this creature you know where on earth did you come from but yeah i just wanted to point that out we'd like to start off the podcast a lot of times with uh some things that are going on in our life and i that's just something that popped out to me from the other day and i wanted to share it well the conspiracy part of it you came by honestly because just as we were getting set to hit record this week you and i were having a little bit of a back and forth about the draft lottery which is actually happening as we record so before we're finished with this intro to this week's podcast by the way have we had as big a name as this on our podcast yet i'm well we've had some big ones yeah okay we've had brian kilroy let me remind you al mckinnis al mckinnis has been on this podcast fair enough but this guy, no slouch, for sure. No, so as, oh, absolutely not. As we're putting together this intro, uh, you and I were just chatting. And you, you believe, erroneously, I want to stress, that it's only a three-team. <laughs> Guess who OHL. just got the fourth overall selection? 
the Niagara Ice Ducks. <laughs> Bingo. Okay. <laughs> anyway, it was all on the up and up. Pope no. was convinced. Yes, it. Listen, a lottery is a lottery. They've already paid their sanctions for the first round picks they had to sacrifice just because just because the Burks made another major boo boo. And I, I that's putting it way too mildly just because they really gummed up the works again doesn't mean there were no sanctions on picks. So if they won the lottery, they won the lottery. Let every what? So people were just, already making jokes that the London Knights were going to win the lottery when they weren't even in the lottery. You can all have your wrestling fantasies and conspiracies all you want. It was a four team lottery. Sorry, Niagara. <laughs> You're getting the fourth pick and hopefully some new ownership. It was a three-team lottery. Sudbury is going to pick third this year, just announced um, as we have the live stream up. But there was no way the OHL was going to allow Niagara to have the first overall selection two weeks after they suspended their general manager and head coach who happened happened to be the sons of the majority owners of the franchise. There's no way that was going to happen this was a three-team lottery you are not going to convince me otherwise there is zero chance of the ice dogs getting that first pick after what they did zero do they deserve the first pick absolutely not but i believe in the human condition i believe rightly or wrongly for the people in the front offices of this league that they do things on the up and up. We might not agree with them all the time, but I believe they do them on the up and up. And unless otherwise indicated that first round picks had to be removed or they were sanctioned from having been able to make those selections, then absolutely the ice dogs were in the lottery too bad. So now we're down to uh, Saginaw and Erie. Those are the two left. Yes, it will be the Saginaw Spirit drafting first overall. So Dave Drinkle, Chris Lazary, they, oh man, the pandemic never screwed up what they had going down there big time. So now they get a little bit of relief getting that first overall selection. Now it's a question of whether it will be an exceptional pick or whether it won't be. Okay, we're going to get to that in just a second, but really quickly, because you mentioned how the pandemic had screwed with the Saginaw spirit. We ran into Dave Drinkle at a hockey game towards the end of the regular season, had a quick chat, and you do have to feel for him and the Saginaw spirit because they had loaded for bear in, I got to get my year straight here, 2017. no, 1819, because then we played oh, yeah, most right. of 1920, right? So they went 1819 and everybody thought, and then all of a sudden it didn't happen because the Guelph storm happened. Remember they came back from three, nothing and three, one down against everybody in that playoff to win the OHL championship. And that's why the Guelph storm are still defending OHL champs, but people were all over the Saginaw spirit that year in a good way. And if you're laying action, like you're betting on the Saginaw spirit, they're going to come out of the West. And you remember that crazy series with the, with the Guelph storm. I do. And, and the puck shot out of play by the goaltender who ends up getting themselves suspended. I mean, we could go on and on, but the team itself, had won and that so they they don't make it that year and i remember talking to chris lazary at the beginning of the 2019-2020 season that was ended prematurely by covid but he said that was if it hadn't been for the birth of his daughter it would have been the worst off season of his life like that's how that's how hard he took that loss the se- the previous season and so that whole year they were like a buzzsaw going through the league they had won 19 of 23 going into mid-March when the league got shut down and and you just don't know. And then you have the year off. And look, they've got some nice pieces now with Minchikov and Sapovalov and they're going to add 
another big piece now getting the, the first overall pick. But I, I think they do the things the right way. I was actually just talking uh, with some folks about Craig Goslin as the owner there and everything perhaps that the, uh, the Burks and Niagara are not because we've taken our shots at, at Niagara already on this podcast. But I think Mr. Goslin has been a great owner. He's kind of one of those model guys, tries really hard in a market that doesn't necessarily take to junior hockey as its first love. And, and they're working hard down there. So I'm happy for them. I'll just put it that way. They are working hard. And I just wish that they would have had those two COVID shortened and canceled seasons to really make a push because a championship down there would just help them out so much, right? Getting more people in the stands to follow along with the spirit and get some young people in there. They got a great marketing tool in T-Bone Cod after missing <laughs> out on Cole Perfetti's last year. And now when you, I'm assuming they're going to take Michael Miso with the first overall selection, um, just adds another piece to that rebuild in Saginaw that Dave Drinkle and Chris Lazary can use. Okay. I want to talk more about Michael Misa because we have a point to make on that, but I want to use this opportunity to quickly remind you that as this podcast is being released on Friday, April the 22nd, you still have time. You can be reminded, build it into your schedule for Saturday, April the 23rd, because if you go to the Tim Hortons in the Deer Ridge area of Kitchener, right there, on King Street East, you can pop in and help out Waterloo Region Crime Stoppers. They're selling key fob blockers so that your key fob cannot be copied or you know, all the gadgets that thieves have now to make a, you know, grab a copy of that and then steal your car, that sort of thing. And when you do that, you're helping out Crime Stoppers of Waterloo Region. You can always do that by just being active in your community, keeping an eye on things. 1-800-222-TIPS is a number to call. If you see something that might lead police to an arrest, it's always anonymous and you will be paid. You can take my word for this. You can be, you will be paid a cash reward for your tip if it does lead to an arrest. So a lot of great people behind this organization, this organization, pardon me, they're volunteers just devoting their time to try to make their community better. So you call in 1-800-222-TIPS. It's always anonymous. You could get a cash reward. You can also go online to waterloocrimestoppers.com and stop by the Deer Ridge Tims on Saturday. Pick up one of those key fob blockers and you're helping out Crime Stoppers at the same time. I love it. So is Michael Misa going to be a member of the Saginaw Spirit? I could not imagine any scenario that would make it otherwise. He's the sixth over the, the sixth uh, exceptional player to be granted early entry, as I like to call it, into the Ontario Hockey League. And four of the five before him, with the exception of Sean Day, uh, went first overall. Sean went fourth to Mississauga. And that was the year, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Konechny went first overall to the Ottawa 67. So, listen, I, I don't have any reason to doubt that he will be the first overall selection. And we'll learn that as this podcast is being released. My only concern, and that's why I said early entry, he's coming in as a 15-year-old. And I know. John Tavares started that train of 15-year-olds coming in, the most recent, most recent, pardon me, being Shane Wright. I'm not disputing for one second that these players are hockey ready for the next level instead of just, you know, scoring 175 points playing with their peers at, at the age of 15. Let's let them move up a level. Let's try against some kids that are 20 years old in this league and see how they do and give them that challenge. I just wish we would change the language. And I know if we get right into the, 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 the language of it, 
you are an exception to the rule, but the way most people look at exceptional player, you have some sort of exceptional skill. You are an exceptional human being. No, he's just another 15 year old. That's really, really good at hockey. Let's change exceptional player status to early entry and take one layer, one layer of the pressure off the kid. I'd love to see it happen. And I've agreed with you in the past on this, but I'm starting to disagree with you for one reason and one reason only. It doesn't matter what we call it. I feel like we're nitpicking. We could call it the blue balloon player. It doesn't matter because that player is still going to feel the pressure of being an underage player in the OHL. Whether you call it exceptional, whether you call it early entry, I don't think the terminology really matters because that player is still going to feel the pressure. The media is still going to be around the player. Other players are still going to make reference to it on the ice when you're playing against them. That pressure is always going to be there for that player, no matter what we call the status. The minute we allowed a player into the league as an underage player, that pressure is there. And it doesn't matter what player comes through, whether it's Sean Day, whether it's Connor McDavid, whether it's Michael Misa, whether it's an exceptional player, whether it's Blue Balloon player, that pressure is going to be on that player. And that's why the OHA and the OHL and the CHL go through such a lengthy interview process with not just the player, but his family, his coaches, and so on and so forth to make sure that the individual not only can hack it on the ice, but that he's able, sorry, they are able to handle the pressure that comes with an early entry underage player playing in the OHL. So let me put it to you this way, because I, I hear where you're coming from and I, and I get it, but that's why when I talk about early entry versus exceptional, I say, let's remove the one layer of pressure because you're right. The kid's under a ton of pressure in a variety of other ways. So let me put it to you this way. And I'm going to pretend that you're a complete moron. I'm just pretending. Thank okay? you. Okay. So, Let's pretend you're a complete moron. And I said to you, hey, did you hear what Superman did yesterday? And you don't know anything about Superman. But you hear the name Superman. Okay? Doesn't that conjure something in your head? Because you hear the name Superman. He's a super... Okay. So if I said to you then, too, did you hear what Clark Kent did the other day? Who's Clark Kent? Right. So if you have early entry... Or if you have exceptional player, even Joe and Jane average, when they hear exceptional player, their mind goes to a different place. Just like when you hear Superman, oh, he's a super human being, as opposed to, oh, he was granted early entry to the Ontario Hockey League. Simple as that. See, I think if you said, oh, he's an exceptional player, people would be like, well, what's that mean? But if you said, oh, he has early entry, then their brain goes, oh, early entry well he must have must be pretty good to get that early that's what i mean it doesn't matter what we call it because even if you said to let's say it was the blue balloon player let's go along with it if i said hey did you hear what michael misa did yesterday oh who's that oh he's the blue balloon player oh is he you know it's gonna make everyone's head turn oh okay so this kid must be good it comes with pressure but if you're applying for that status whatever that status may be you know the pressure is going to be there. You're applying for it. You're asking for that pressure to be put on you. That's why these interviews are so in-depth and why they go to the lengths they do to secure their own selves and knowing that this player can handle it. Because that, that, that's kind of my point. It doesn't matter what we call it, whether it's exceptional, early, at, early entry, blue balloon. It's going to come with pressure and it's going to come with eyes and it's going to come with people talking about you. Think back to John Tavares in this league, even McDavid. 
over the course of his career, their careers, by the end of the their OHL career, people were starting to nitpick their game and find things wrong with it and be like, well, he's not that good of a skater. Well, how's he really, how's this 200 foot game really? It's good. That's why he was given this status. That's why he's going to go early in the NHL draft, thinking of Tavares and McDavid. But so it, it, there's going to be that pressure and you have to be able to handle it no matter what you call it. Can I just do a quick aside here based on what you just said? Please. I love that we do that. It's one of the things I love about sports in general, that we are from the age of 15, in some cases, demanding excellence so that at some point we might be nitpicking a minor part of a player's game because we expect the player to be here. And maybe he's just a little bit below that or she, I just, I love the fact that we still at some level, particularly in sport demand excellence. It is a results oriented business. You don't give us the results. You're out of the business. I kind of like that brief aside. I don't because it's, it's one thing to demand excellence. How many people are at that level though? Like, well, that's Shane, that's Shane Ray should be able to have two weeks off where he's just not the best player in the world. Like he's allowed to do that, especially at this age. Like if I'm just concentrating on the OHL, like, yeah, but you like, and it's probably detrimental to my career to say it, but I think like there's almost too much media around athletes because they, they don't get a night off. They don't like you're allowed to go in and do the Mike Farwell show. And if you have a Wednesday that, you know, like that you would probably admit, I don't know if today was a good show or not. I didn't listen, but if it's like, Oh, I, you know, I wasn't on today. I didn't have my best stuff. That's allowed to happen, but nobody's sitting there writing articles being like, Oh, Farwell was terrible today. Blah, 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 blah. There's all that added pressure. And then when you bring in someone like Michael Misa, who we're talking to, just imagine the pressure on this kid. Cause if he comes into the league and he's got five points by Christmas, He's getting torched for no reason. Well, no, there, there'd be a reason for that. I'm sorry, 15 years old or not. If you've got five points in the first 30 odd games of your OHL career, you're not performing up to standards. Sorry for your luck. I, and listen, sure. And I'm not, I get it. I'm not saying like, ever, of course, of course, they're allowed the two weeks or the, the, the slump of whatever kind. I'm just saying bigger picture. If you don't perform at a certain level over the long term, somebody who can is going to take your spot. And I, I'm, a, I'm kind of okay with that. So yeah, I'm allowed a bad Wednesday on the show and make no mistake. While people don't write a lot of articles about AM radio hosts anymore. Oh, the internet's a fun place. It's a, yeah, and so true. I get to know, I get to know in, in real time how good or bad a job I'm doing. But if I, over the long term, and, and you know this as well as I do, if, if I don't do enough, if I don't do more good shows than bad shows and my ratings go down, guess what? They will show me the door and bring in somebody who can get the ratings that they need to survive as a, as a company. I, I'm honestly, I'm so okay with it. And I kind of like it a bit. I'm okay with it too, in, in a sense, but I just think we all, we all need to be remember reminded sometimes that these are 16 to 20 year olds. If Mike Farwell sitting in the Mike Farwell show chair at 18 years old had a bad Wednesday and heard the things that you hear now, how would you have dealt with it? Again, agree with you. And and so I'm not saying by any stretch of the imagination, punt a player from this league, but they might not, they might not make it to the NHL because, and I know it's pressure. I get it. But again, that's kind of what I like. If you, if you want to go to the national hockey league, which as good as some of the European, like, Swedish elite and other leagues are still 
we know the National Hockey League is the very best of the very best. You want to be among that group of 700 or so players? You're going to go out and earn it. And we're going to demand excellence all the way along. I, again, there's a part of me. I know it makes me a bit of a a-hole, but I kind of like it. I get it. And I understand where you're coming from. I just think it's important for people to remember that there are players in the OHL right now who maybe are in their second, first, or third year, maybe even fourth year. And they're identifying their own game well enough that, hey, I'm probably not going to make the NHL. So let's get my education package here. Let's go and have some fun playing competitive hockey. Get some eyes on me. I might go to Europe, but maybe I'll just go to Waterloo University, graduate in mathematics, and start working in the NHL as a stat guy. I don't, I don't know. Sure, but I'm very not few that people, smart. Very few media people are writing articles or doing podcasts about those players. Right? There's just that, that certain group that we're all expecting things out of. Like you, you don't think there was pressure on Wyatt Johnston this year as he tore up the league with 124 points? Absolutely. Right. NHL drafted player. I would, I would expect that pressure. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. I just, th- I just sometimes think we're too hard on them sometimes. Like, no, and that's, and I, no, that's where I we're myself, I, I say myself too, because you expect so much from these 16, 17 year olds. And it's like, well, he's had, he's been terrible the last five games. Okay. What else is going on in his life? Does he, ha- you know, <laughs> does he have a big exam coming up Are his parents? Okay. You know, is he struggling being away from, there's so many things that go into it and they're, they're already under a lot of pressure. I just feel like sometimes it would probably better the player and the person if they were allowed to take a deep breath every now and then, especially with the amount. I'm not talking about Johnny third line. I'm talking about Shane, Wright. I'm talking about Michael Misa. I'm talking about Luke Evangelista, all these guys who are under so much pressure and that pressure is going to come when they're multi-million dollars on the line. Keep in mind, these are student athletes right now. That's all. I think there's room for criticism and room for expectation, but there's also, there also should be room to, remember what we're dealing with. Couldn't agree more. Slumps are allowed for sure. I'm talking about the long-term track of a player, be it at this level or in the pros, right? You're going to get demoted if you're not putting up the numbers. You're going to get cut. if you're Nobody's going to offer you a contract in the pros if you're not putting up the numbers. And that's absolutely not, not exclusive to hockey, right? That's the minute just, you get to the, yeah, the minute you get to the pro ranks, all bets are off. Like you, you're getting paid. You have to do a job. They expect a job. It's just like any job in the world, except in this one. There's a lot more pressure, a lot more scrutiny, and they can get rid of you a lot easier. So the pressure is obviously on for every, well, no, sorry, for 16 of the OHL. I was going to say every OHL team, but no, congratulations again to the Saginaw Spirit who have won the draft lottery and will select first along with the Spirit, the Erie Otter. So two of the three U.S.-based teams, Sudbury Wolves and Niagara Ice Dogs. Outside looking in, the other 16 are about about to embark on the playoffs and Popper, I got to tell you that it feels to me and I don't know why it's just, it's just a gut feeling maybe because it's just been that strange season that it's been ever since like, this is our first playoff since 2019. Like it's so hard to imagine. We were so close to the playoffs when COVID shut things down in March of 2020 and we had a whole season washed out. So we're getting back into it. And I, I just have a feeling. And maybe it's because the season was so weird. Are we playing? Are we not playing? Are there fans? Are there not fans? Whatever. This might be the time we finally see some upsets in the first round of the Ontario Hockey League playoffs. Because as you well know, they're not all that common, those upsets. (laughs) They're just not. They're not at all. And I don't, I'm sure we will see a first, I'm going to call it. We're going to see a first round upset in the OHL this year. Will it be an 8-1? Probably not. 
but we will see an upset in the first round this year. I think there's just too much parity. There's only a few teams that really load it up, if you will, like we've seen in the past. Uh, I'm expecting a first round upset. I don't know where, but I'm expecting one. Yeah, I I think that this is a year that's kind of ripe for it because we watched the West. Uh, I'm going to go Nick Porco on you here because he already called his shot before the playoffs even began. But I I think maybe, and and I love you, Brennan Othman, and I love you, Luke Cavillan, and I love you, City of Flint. But I think the Firebirds, who piled up almost 20 of their wins this regular season against Saginaw and Erie in the earlier parts of the year, might be, might be vulnerable. And that Owen Sound team works like a dog. They are a hardworking bunch. And I think we might see the sixth ranked Owen Sound attack in the West up and the third ranked Flint Firebirds. I can hop on that train with you for sure. I think I said it actually at the end of our broadcast in one sound that I thought they were going to be split. So maybe I should just call my shot, but um, I, I really like the way that Owen sound team is built. I think if Nick Porco can get healthy up front, that's very important. And I think the biggest piece is if Mark Woolley gets back on their back end after suffering an injury against Windsor earlier this season, um, he's just such a, he's their best player. Like he's their big X factor on the back end. And, with some question marks in goal, as good as Nick Chenard has been taking over from Matt Guzda. He hasn't been a starter for too long. That high-powered Flint offense is going to come a buzzing. And Mark Woolley can certainly help out a guy like Nick Chenard in goal by playing the way Mark Woolley does all the time. So as much as I had the hunch that this might be a year we see some upsets, and it, it just it felt to me like they are rare, I decided to look into it. And, and they might even be more rare than I thought. Only four times, Popper, only four times in the past decade has there been a first-round upset in the Ontario Hockey League. And in fairness, I didn't look at point totals at the end of the season. I just looked at 1-8-2-7-3-6-4-5, et cetera. And I didn't count five over four as an upset. It could have been a 20-point difference on a particular year, so take it for what it is. But just looking at the matchups only four times in a decade. And the way you put it then, when I told you that, you said that's four out of 80 series. That makes it sound even crazier. But you have to go back to 2016 to find the last time that it happened when the seventh-ranked Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds beat the number two-ranked Sarnia Sting. It went seven, but that was that Sarnia team that loaded up. They had Travis Connecting, they had Jordan Cairo, they had Pavel Zaka. And they lost in the first round to the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds with Blake Spears. Uh, Zachary Sinition was on that team. A young Boris Kachuk was a part of that Sioux team. But nonetheless, seven over two in 2016 was the last time it happened. And if you want to find an eight over a one, you better go do some digging because you got to go all the way back to 2005 when Greg Gilbert was coaching the Mississauga Ice Dogs. And he and Patrick O'Sullivan lost in the first round as the first seed to the number eight Toronto St. Michael's majors and Daryl Boyce. James Boyd was an associate coach with that Toronto St. Mike's team, but there you go. I, I don't think we're going to see an eight versus one this year. Windsor and Hamilton, just too good in both, both conferences. Um, I really think the East is just going to come down to Hamilton and North Bay with all due respect to Kingston and Mississauga. I think Mississauga, if Matt Guzda can get back in, to Barry, that's going to be a really good series to watch both Mississauga and Barry, I think two teams that nobody really, I shouldn't say nobody, that not a lot of people talk about, 
but two teams that could win any series and I wouldn't be shocked with some of the personnel obviously Brant Clark not being there for Barry Hurts but yeah and that's just- I really liked the addition of Tyson Forster for obvious reasons when he was uh, re- returned very generously and and that Barry team just seems to be it's almost like depends on the night right yeah. they're world beaters one night and then exactly the opposite another night but they're a bit of a wild card to me in the in the Eastern Conference just like Flint is in the West just because the way the season started and with the matchups they had, I'm not sure. And, and that's why I think there might be upsets around this year, because I'm not sure we really know who anybody is. If you had one opponent's number this year, you could have racked up 10 wins yeah. right, against that one team. So Sarnia is kicking themselves that they didn't pass Kitchener for seven. <laughs> yes. Because they, they had London's number this year. Absolutely. And now they're in tight against a, a very good, very, very good Windsor Spitfires team that seems to just put it all together at the right time. Are they ever flying right now? I, when I look at the matchups across the OHL, there's one that stands out to me, head and shoulders above the rest, and that's the 4-5 in the West, Sioux and the Guelph Storm. I, I want to watch every one of those games in its entirety. I doubt I'll be able to. But man, that is going to be a fun series to watch with just all the offense in that series and both teams with some good defense. Like I just think it's going to be one heck of a series. I hope it goes seven. Give us seven games of that. Just put it right in my veins. Yeah, I think it's going to be like six, four, seven, five scores too. Yeah. I really do because look, no disrespect to either team's goaltending, but it's not their strongest suit. You talked about the offense. Both teams can really fill the net. It's going to be a lot of fun watching them freewheel. And I think the four or five on the East side is looking pretty good too. We already talked about Barry and, you know, they, they certainly can gun, but Mississauga and the goaltending they've had this season. Boy, oh boy, that could be really interesting. What happens when an unstoppable object meets an immovable force? It's going to be great to watch. And just something to keep in mind on the Sioux and storm series. The Storm brought in three overagers, all from the Sarnia Sting. Sarnia, Sioux have quite the rivalry. <laughs> that they do. And and the Guelph Storm are the defending Ontario Hockey League champions. Until they are eliminated, they might repeat. There you go. I, I wouldn't be. Uh, that's the thing about this year. At least, like, I don't. Obviously, we're not as educated on the East as we are the West because we haven't seen the East all year. We do our best, but we obviously know the Western conference a lot more and given the makeup of that storm roster, I wouldn't be shocked if the, at the end of the season, if you're like, oh, storm are in the OHL final, I'd be, well, yeah, they're pretty good. Like, and you, you could say the same about Flint, the Sioux, London, Windsor, maybe even Owen sound like the West is crazy this year. Absolutely crazy. Boy, oh boy. All 23 of our fans in Kitchener want to punch you in the nose right now. Not even giving them consideration. eh? Of uh, those 23 fans, I hope they watched the game. Like, uh, <laughs> what? I'm, I'm, anything can happen, sure. I'm just saying, if I'm looking at the West, the Rangers finished seventh. They're not in the same league as Windsor, London, Sioux, Flint. Like, I, I don't think I'm telling tales out of school. I think anybody knows that. They're going to need things to fall right in their lap, and they need to work their tail off in order to win a couple series. I hope they do. Don't get me wrong. I love paychecks. So <laughs> I like money. And the longer the Rangers go, the longer I work. So this is good for me. Um, I just, this is obviously a rebuilding year. I don't imagine Mike McKenzie would say, yeah, we're hoping for an OHL final. By the way, three months ago, we traded Arbor Jacki and Declan McDonald. <laughs> like they're obviously building for the future. 
I think that uh, for Rangers fans, if you're looking for your glass half full, look between the pipes because both Pavel Chayon and Jackson Parsons were playing as good as we saw them play at any point during the season, during the final two to three weeks. And goaltending can be an absolute series breaker. So those two guys keep rolling along like that and you're giving yourself a chance any given night. You mentioned goaltending. It can be the X factor in a series, especially when one team like Kitchener has it. And right now, one team like the Knights quite literally does not have their starting goalie. That is going to be the biggest question mark ahead of Thursday night in London. This will be yesterday when this is released. Is Brett Brochu ready enough to play in the postseason? And what percentage does he need to be at physically for Dale Hunter to play him? Is an 80% Brett Brochu between the pipes? My guess is yes. Quick reminder for you. Uh, tomorrow, Saturday, April the 23rd, stop by the Tim's in the Deer Ridge area of Kitchener. Pick up your key fob blocker and support Waterloo Regional Crime Stoppers. Look them up online, waterloocrimestoppers.com. And don't forget to use 1-800-222-TIPS to call in your anonymous tip that could pay you cash money if it leads to an arrest. Our guest on the pod this week has his share of OHL playoff experience. And his share of tips i'm sure where he tipped it into the net because he scored an abundance of goals for the kitchener rangers four years in the ontario hockey league rookie of the year ohl mvp oh yeah ohl championship memorial cup memorial cup mvp too second rounder to buffalo how about 700 games in the show 500 plus points then went over to europe did his thing over there now a new father and he took some time to join ohl stories ladies and gentlemen arguably the greatest ranger of all time. He's in the conversation. Derek Roy. Well, I'm usually pretty anal about starting these things or trying to go in some sort of chronological order. But since Popper and I are sitting here in Erie, just ahead of a Rangers-Otters game tonight, I thought, why not just start right there? Because when you entered the Ontario Hockey League, Derek, the Otters were a force. They were coming up on their first championship. And I'm sure you've got a memory or two about visiting that arena before the renovation and playing Brad Boys and Corey Pecker and Carlo Koliakovo. Yeah, I remember that. They had a they had a great team. That was a tough spot to play. I remember that walk you kind of made uh, entering the, the ice surface and, and getting booed and yelled at by all the fans and um you know they're a passionate uh, passionate group of fans and uh, they had a great hockey team i remember it was uh, definitely battles walking in that building every night speaking of erie we were um on a walk with dan liebold last night and uh your name came up and he said uh i can't tell you any stories all i know is that derek roy came in as a boy and he left as a man <laughs> what does that mean to you derek <laughs> I don't know. I think, uh, you know, definitely when I came in, I think I was probably 155 pounds, maybe, you know, five, eight, 155 pounds, very small, uh, very small guy. And, and coming from a small town uh, just outside of Ottawa and, and, and come to Kitchener and then playing there four years and, and then uh, meeting all different people along the way and winning a championship and, um, you know, having that city rally behind us and, and everything. I thought, 
and then even getting drafted and, and going through the, uh, the camps, the NHL camps, you know, you, you de- definitely develop uh, a lot quicker and, and being a man uh, leaving Kitchener was, was probably a, a good statement by Dan for sure. <laughs> We're obviously going to get a chance to talk about that championship because it was the most significant part of your junior career. But how about as a kid from a small town? coming into the Ontario Hockey League, and especially in a city like Kitchener, where the, the arena is large, you've got thousands of fans there. Like, was there a little bit of fish out of water moment for you? Uh, no, I liked it. I, uh, I felt like I embraced it right away. I felt um, playing in such a small environment in front of, you know, a couple hundred. And I, I even thought a couple hundred people was, was crazy at the time when I was 15 years old. Um, and then uh, I always embraced the the challenge of of uh, you know the big game, the spotlight, whatnot, and and just seeing seeing that uh, rank packed the first night, and, and and even exhibition games, I was like, this is this is where I want to be, and this is what I want to do. So um, definitely embraced it and enjoyed every moment of it. We all know you were quite the hockey player, but how were you at picking strawberries? Uh, <laughs> I, I start. I somehow fell into a management position uh, all right away uh, because uh, somebody quit. So um, they were like, uh, "You seem like a nice guy. You want the management position?" So I was like, well, "What does that entail?" <laughs> so and then I had to make sure everyone was picking the strawberries in the right places and selling the pre-selling boxes of strawberries before. And so that was uh, that was my job uh, right before I, I made the OHL. So. Um, you know, I had a couple, a couple of jobs before and, but that was just, uh, you know, it was, it was a funny to put it in from, from going to the strawberry patch to, to playing in the NHL. I felt like, you know, it was pretty, uh, pretty funny. The great bio. Yeah. Hey, better to be in a management position when you're strawberry picking than picking. That's backbreaking work, Roisy. No, it is. Uh, my brother was, uh, was younger than me. Um, so he's, uh, you know, six years younger than me. So he was, he was in that, he was in that position of picking the strawberries. So, uh, we put Scott to work and, uh, and made, uh, made, I'm like, Hey, I need, uh, you know, 10 boxes of strawberry, get out there, <laughs> start picking. So it was, uh, no, it was, it was funny. It was, it was a good job. I liked it and enjoyed it. Not only did Scott have to actually do the hard labor, he had his brother as his boss, which I'm sure you were pretty easy on him. Oh yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, lots of, a lot of breaks, a lot of water breaks <laughs> out there in the scorching heat. Um, no, just kidding. He was, uh, no, he was great. What was it like for, for you growing up, Derek? And uh, cause I heard you mention in, in another interview that the role, obviously, and we hear this from so many players that their parents played early on to foster that love of the game. What did the family mean to you in terms of developing you as a hockey player, even prior to the OHL? Uh, well, my dad, uh, stopped playing hockey before I was born. So I didn't get, I didn't get a chance really to see him play, but he was my coach growing up. And I have an older brother um, that was, was obviously um, he's just one year older. So we were on the same team from, you know, novice and, and um, just before novice. Um, and um, so my dad was coaching us until that time, I think novice, and then he just let us, let us be on our own. Um, but uh, you know, from, from having a brother that obviously you're going back and forth, playing in the driveway, playing on the outdoor rinks, you know, going to see his games and following. So it was basically living at hockey rinks and playing any sort of hockey that we can uh, get a chance to do. If we got five minutes, we're playing mini sticks. So um, 
you know, that the whole background family thing, we played a ton of hockey growing up and, you know, I think that's where you develop a lot of your little skills and, and, and work ethic. And I think, uh, you know, having a, a family and my mother obviously would, would drive us to hockey games all over, all over the place. So um, give credit to my parents for, you know, sticking with us and, and uh, you know, obviously through hard times and, and good times. And, and uh, obviously the financial thing is, is the tough, uh, tough aspect of, of growing up playing hockey uh, in a family where we didn't have that many, that much means. So, um, you know, that's always, um, always have a special place for, for my parents, obviously with what they did for me growing up and, and all the sacrifices they made and, and uh, you know that's that's why um, hockey families seem to be seem to be great families, nice and tight. And yeah, yeah. and uh, again, can't say enough about how how good they've been throughout my life. How often, as a young kid, would you uh, go to a visiting rink or maybe a tournament, score a goal, and they'd announce your name, Derek Waugh? Yeah, <laughs> a lot. I think. <laughs> well, I mean, I went to French school my whole life, so I was my name was Waugh in French right so um growing up I uh, spoke French and we were from a little French town so um then when I came to the OHL uh the announcers were do you want us to say roar or wah and and I was like what like wah is fine like you know and and I, I guess it just Kind of, kind of went from there, and then I have Patrick Wall. Obviously, people would say Wall all the time, so um, I'm sure he corrected some people throughout his life. So um, I think uh, you know, I just kind of stayed with that and let it let it go. And I don't think a lot of people even know I spoke French. So, so wait, it, like your grandparents and parents, is it Wall or is it Roy? Well, my dad's side of the family is all French, and my mom's side of the family is all English. So. <laughs> It kind of was in the middle. So my dad wanted me to obviously speak French. Um, so we went to French school when we went all the way up through, uh, through high school. And then when I went to Kitchener, uh, I went to an English school. So I had to kind of make that switch. And then when I went back in the summer, I went back to my uh, French high school. So I kind of had to like um, try to plan all my um, um, school uh, curriculum, try to like plan it. So it kind of falls into to place where I, when I go back home, you know, I'm doing French or English and, and whatnot. So it was, it was pretty, uh, pretty challenging in that. What did you know about the Ontario Hockey League and the Kitchener Rangers when they selected you in the draft? Um, I knew, well, we knew Jamie McDonald. He, um, he was one of our coaches growing up. And so he coached, he had a son, uh, Aaron McDonald, and he was my brother's age. So they played together growing up. So Jamie coached me, I think, in novice and I think maybe in Adam. And so he's seen me kind of grow, grow up uh, through the auto ranks of hockey. And, um, you know, he really liked my game and he really wanted me to play for, for Kitchener. And I thought it was just a nice, um, comfortable segue to go from um, a small town to at least I know somebody over there and he was saying he was going to play me a lot and they were in a rebuilding stage and it just seemed to be like a really good fit for, for me personally. So um, I think that th that decision was pretty easy, but I didn't know much about Kitchener um, before I got there. I just knew it was way bigger than where I came from. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, obviously seen pictures of the stuff uh, of, of the facilities and everything. And, you know, it seemed, it seemed to be really nice. So um, I really want to uh, 
to go there and and it's it's pretty significant it's close to, to home i mean there's not that much closer uh places than you know belleville kingston or ottawa so um or a couple of toronto teams so it was kind of like right in, in the mix and and uh you know that was it was pretty easy decision for us and, and the family you came in with steve eminger spent a lot of time with steve world juniors obviously the championship what was that relationship like Oh, it was, it was great. I think at the beginning it was a little bit of more competition because you're the two, the two young guys on the team and see who's going to outperform who or, or whatnot. But then, but then it just became, we became friends. And, and, uh, you know, uh, when he came back down from the NHL, cause he went up early and, and then, uh, we were so happy for him. And, and then when he came back down and, um, it was just awesome to have him back because he's obviously a great player, but, but a good friend as well. So, I think uh, having Steve push us over the edge to win the, the championship, but also just having him back as a, as a friend was, was, was nice. What did it mean to you when they put the C on your Jersey in Kitchener? Um, I think it meant a lot. I think it was all the hard work throughout the, uh, throughout my years playing in Kitchener and, and uh, I'm got a kind of guy that came to the rink every day and, and uh, try to be the best player at practice or and games or, or whatnot I think that was my my main goal was to be to go out on the ice and be the best player and uh you know it doesn't happen every night but if you have that goal in mind every night um you know most most nights it's going to come true so um I, I think uh, I was the last guy off the ice mo- most most of my my career in the OHL so um especially my my first two three years I was always the last guy off the ice so um, it's one of those, it's one of those things where, um, I think management saw the, the work ethic and, and, uh, the way I prepared uh, for games and, and, um, you know, gave me the C and, and it gives you a lot of leadership, um, to lead your team out there every night and, and puts a little weight on your shoulders. But, you know, I was happy to take on that weight and, and, uh, it happened to work for us that year. And we, uh, yeah, we were, uh, um we're a great team and we, we didn't really need to lead that much when you got guys like uh you know mike richards and steve emingers and greg campbells and um you know even scott dickey your goaltender was talking a lot and clarkson we had a bunch of guys that, that could lead so um you know for me it wasn't i didn't have to do much because we had such a, a a good core group of guys that andre benoit and guys like that we had a group core group of guys that just worked hard and and we were all in it for one goal is to win it so that if I can quite, just follow that up real quick, sorry. I know that's no, what a list. Quite the I, team. I was yeah, just like, yeah. <laughs> but it, it sounds like then it was leadership by example was your style. Was there a time that you had that you felt like you had to stand up in that group and say something at a particular moment? Well, yeah, there's always times throughout a season. Um, I think you pick and choose your, your moments as a captain. You're not going to raw, raw every single night, but um, I think uh, times are in desperate times. You need to, to step up and say, say things. But most of the time, a lot of guys just, I led the way where I don't care how old you are, 16 or if you're 20, uh, if you want to say something, stand up in the group, then, then go ahead and, and uh, have your voice be heard. And I felt like uh, I treated, try to treat everyone with the same amount of respect. If you're 16 year old or 20 year old, I gave you time day and the respect that, that you wow. deserve. You're on our team and, and uh, there's no, no guy more important than, than anybody else. So, think um you know that's the way that we we as a group kind of uh enjoyed our our company with each other and and uh you know it was was a fun season on and off the ice 
So just to let you know, we, as Farwell mentioned, we are in Erie. Farwell's up in our hotel room. I'm down in the lobby doing some work. And about 20 minutes before this podcast started, the Rangers walked by just wrapping up lunch. Brandon Murley walked by. He was in OA in your rookie season. What was Merle's like? No, he's great. I thought, uh, you know, he's one of my line mates throughout, uh, throughout my first season. Um, he was a very hard worker and, and a good hockey player. So, um, you know, we had a lot of like uh, older guys that um, um, were, were very, very instrumental in my career. Like Serge Pai was one of those guys. And, you know, we had Ryan Milanovic and Alan Rourke and guys like that. So I think, you know, those guys were where I aspired to be as, as, as players. And um, so I wanted to um, try to, try to like model my my game after some of them and and uh the leadership that Pie brought and the fact that he went to the nhl the next year um those are things that you see um happen and and then you look at your your game and you're like i just get a little bit better i can i can be in the nhl if you know if he can make it and you know he's worked hard his whole career and it just you just see that once you see something happen to somebody then then you start dreaming yourself well this is possible this could this could happen so um i don't think the first year you don't you're not even thinking of the nhl you're just thinking of you know how to play how to how to play in the ohl and how much of different because i came from bantam so it was such a jump for me so how do i fit in and and how do i play well and how do i put up points how do i succeed and how do i have my team succeed and, and win some hockey games um that's going through your head and then when you see somebody else go to the nhl you're like well that's my next step. So I think, uh, you know, that Murley was just a, a great leader and, and uh, you know, good guy to be around. It's, uh, it's good that he's still with the organization. What was it like playing for Pete DeBoer and Steve Spott? Uh, demanding, I would say. <laughs> I think that's a good word to, uh, to sum it all up. I think right away, um, you think you're working hard and then, you know, they're, they, they got a different level of, of work. And uh, I know right away he came in and said, we're going to win the, the championship. And previously to that, my first two years, I only won one playoff game. So I was like a pretty long, pretty long, pretty big step here that I'm going to have to make to win it. So I think uh, right, a, right away that it put it, right in the back of our head that okay this is the goal now as opposed to the goal before was make the playoffs just make the playoffs see what happens this goal was was far exceeding making the playoffs was to win the whole thing so and the moral cup not just championship and the moral cup so um it got us kind of dreaming about it got us thinking about it and i think we made some big steps that season and then the following season um obviously we we made that the biggest step possible is to win it all so i think uh just instilling that work ethic and and putting that uh picture of winning the stand or winning the moral covenant in the back of our head um that that definitely um uh sparked everybody and uh gave us an extra jump that we needed that year when you did accomplish your goal at what point did you realize this is going to happen. And was it the Gregory Campbell trade? <laughs> uh, he, that was such a big trade for us. And uh, I've never met Greg until, un, until that point. And I met him at the world championships or the uh, world juniors camp in the summertime. And it was, it was like, uh, Hey man, how's it going? And he's like, good. And it's like, Hey, my sticks didn't come in. You think I could borrow a few of your Eastern synergies? 
And that, you know, that was like the, the first conversation I think we had. And he was like, Oh yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> sure, man. He can pour so much sticks. So, uh, and, uh, we had the same curve and everything. So, um, yeah, that was the first. And I think I played with him. I don't think I played with another line mate the whole time. I think I played with him. Um, even in the all-star game at the world juniors, world juniors camp, everything I played with, uh, with soupy and he's, uh, He's a great man, and and uh, he's he's uh, he was instrumental for my career, and uh, we both helped each other um, get to where where we wanted to be, and that was the NHL. And and uh, I even played with him one year in Rochester when he when I got sent down. Um, he was part of the um, the Florida group, Florida and, and uh, Buffalo split uh, split times in with their farm teams in Rochester. So me and Sue, we got to connect back in Rochester on the same line again. So. <laughs> I think we just had a nice little chemistry going um, where we didn't even need to talk to each other. Uh, we just knew where each other were going to be. And, and uh, it was so easy to play with because his work ethic was, was incredible and still is. So, um, you know, that was such a big trade for us. And like you said, I think that sparked everything for sure. That season, obviously it's 20 years ago now. And uh, the last Memorial cup that the Kitchener Rangers have won, they've appeared in one, but that's the last one that they won. So maybe that's why, this part of the story takes on sort of the, the legend that it has here in the city of Kitchener for sure. But everybody talks about that seven game West final versus the Plymouth Whalers. You come into the playoffs, you sweep the Sioux, you take care of Guelph in five. The OHL final is a five game run over Ottawa and then you don't drop a game in the Memorial Cup. But you had to go on the road down three two in the West final to win in Plymouth and then come home for game seven to wrap it up. Everybody says that going down to win game six, they knew that if you won that game, it was over. What was the feeling though, for the team making that trip to play Plymouth in that West final game six? Uh, I think it's nerve wracking uh, driving down there. You know, you're just anxious to get the game started. Um, I think. And then, and then uh, spotter gave a great speech in, in the dressing room um, about, we're going to remember this day for the rest of our lives. We're going to take care of business tonight. We're going to win game seven and win the Moral cup. And, I feel like everyone believed in that. I feel like, I feel like we, we played better than, than them during the, it was a tight series. They were a great team, but I, we felt we played better and we still had more to, more to give. So um, I think we beat them pretty good in game six because we were just so, so fired up to play that game after that speech and, and having the confidence, you know, you lose a game, you just, relax you're still confident you know you're gonna win the win the um, win the series and I think that's the same thing in Ottawa I felt we lost the first game against Ottawa but we outshot them uh like two to one like two to one and so we knew I think we had 30 shots in the first period so we knew like it was just gonna break free and we were gonna end up winning the series so there was no panic um, and I think that's, that's, um, the confidence that we had and, and, in the group as individuals and as a team, I think. So, um, even losing that first game against Ottawa, we knew we were going to win the comeback and win the series. So I think that, you know, some, some teams have that, some teams don't. And I think that comes down to, like I said before, we had so many leaders in that dressing room that, uh, that, that, that was to overcome little things like that was, was pretty easy for us. From that Memorial Cup, everybody obviously lifts the Memorial Cup, but the picture that I always remember is you hoisting with that huge smile on your face and you're staring up into the crowd. What was that? I'm sure you were staring at family. What was that moment like? 
yeah, it was it was it was a really really awesome feeling. So I remember before I'm like, do I yell or what do I <laughs> what, do, what do I do here? <laughs> so uh, I don't even remember what came out of my mouth at the time, but it was uh, it, it's it's a surreal feeling, and it almost feels like you're dreaming, you know, because I always had that dream of of lifting it up. Um, because Pete put that in the back of our heads. And so I was dreaming about it a lot. And then for it to happen, it almost feels like you're dreaming it. So um, it feels like the moment goes by so quick and you're handing it to somebody else. So, uh, but it it was such a great feeling. And um, for me to lift it um, on behalf of the team at first was, was so special, but I also wanted to give it away right away because I knew everyone else deserved it and everyone else you know, fought just as hard, if not harder. And, and, um, and it's some guys waiting, been waiting so long for this as well, that, um, that it was, it was nice to hand it off to people and, and, and watch their, their faces and their enjoyment of it. Who'd you give it to first and why? I'm not I don't even remember. Like I said, like it was probably somebody like Steve Eminger. Like <laughs> we, we, we've been there for four years. Uh, uh, trying to get this and and um, I don't know if there was anybody I think maybe Scott Dickey was there for four years as well um, so um, I think those like it maybe goes by rank I don't remember <laughs> I think I brought or is either Greg or whatever I don't remember but I remember uh, being in Kitchener and, and not winning a playoff winning one playoff game in your first three years to going and winning the Memorial Cup uh, I think you've been through enough hardship to lift the lift the cup and, and enjoy the experience. So here we are having this conversation. I mentioned earlier, it's 20 years since that championship. And in the meantime, you've played more than 700 NHL games. You've had the chance to represent Canada at various tournaments and, and won medals. You, you're basically just a year from officially announcing your retirement from the game. Has any moment along the way matched that surreal dreamlike moment of lifting the Memorial Cup? Um, I mean, winning, winning a medal at the Olympics or, um, just being a part of the Olympics, I think was such a great, uh, great feeling. And, um, there was a surreal time at the Olympics when I was stretching and warm up and I looked up at the crowd and I saw, um, my family with a team can of flags and, and signs and stuff like that. And I'd kind of looked over and peeked and saw, and I was like, wow, I'm at the Olympics. Like it just, it didn't hit me until like that moment. And I was like, all right, let's, let's do this. Let's put on a show and let's, you know, let's win this game. So um, I think that, you know, those two moments or the, the like games, we lost in game seven, the Stanley or um, conference finals um, being on the ice during game, like a game seven of that magnitude was, 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 was unbelievable as well. And even the gold medal, the gold medal games, like, playing at the world championships. Those are, those are big moments that, you know, you always remember how you felt and, and, and how, how it went. Um, but definitely when you, when you end a, a season on a win with uh, lifting Moral cup, um, it's just, it's, it's a surreal feeling that you, you, sh- you think you got to come to the rink the next day. So you're, you're, cause you didn't have that feeling, you don't have, you didn't have that losing pit in your stomach. So you, you just, you never want the season to end. So you're just like, hey, are we going to skate tomorrow? <laughs> but, uh, 
Um, Pete's like, yeah, yeah bag skate, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> you still want to be a part of that group. Cause you know, like that's the last time you're going to ever play suit up together that, with that whole team together. So yeah, that was, that was probably one or if not the best feeling I've had in, in hockey for sure. I know I mentioned this to you before, but Steve Spot has talked about wanting a 20th anniversary of that team. So we're not far from it. I'm, I'm sure if he, I'll tell him to call you, but whatever, you, you'll be part of this, right? Oh yeah, for sure. 100%. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, bronze medal at the Olympics, obviously suffering the loss in the semifinal game. Um, I've heard you talk about just how tough that was, but before the bronze medal game, did you echo a little Steve Spot from that game six in Plymouth in the dressing room for your pregame speech? Yeah, I mean, a um, little bit of help with from uh, Willie Desert, and uh, I think he was kind of giving me. Uh, I know you should go in there and say some things, and and uh, giving me a little pep talk before I went out and gave the boys the pep talk. You know, so <laughs> I was gonna say something anyway. So I, I I knew I knew something had to be said at that moment, and um, it was one of those where it's um, you don't want to regret it for the rest of your life that you didn't put you know, your best foot forward because you feel, you feel bad from losing the night before. And it's really hard. I mean, you're, you're working towards one goal and you don't get it. And now you have to battle back and work for your second goal. But um, I, I mean, I think everyone that left there and, and knowing the fact that they, they left with a medal um, and put, put best, uh, put their best foot forward and, and played the best game um, that they could. Um, for the country i think everyone um did such an amazing job and we came out of there with a bronze medal and um i've been on the side of losing a gold medal and winning a bronze medal and i think winning a bronze medal feels better than than losing a gold medal because it takes you a while to to get rid of that bad taste in your mouth from losing the gold medal but when you win a bronze you're you're celebrating um nobody's celebrating silvers very much so I think uh, that's that's the only difference is you're walking in the dressing room and you're celebrating that you won a medal as opposed to it takes you an hour or so to uh, figure out that okay I still want a silver I'm excited to to to, have, to bring some hardware home for my for my country but um, pretty sour taste losing a gold medal I'll tell you that you won five medals with Canada across different tournaments and stuff do you have them anywhere displayed or you keep them in a safe? Uh, I think there's oh there's the bronze medal up here i think oh yeah let's see it oh, oh that's, that, that's fantastic that's cool and a nice ranger bobblehead too yeah i just got that actually when i came, when I came down for the the coaching experience uh for the uh nice you know that what you were just saying derek about winning bronze and losing gold kind of speaks volumes because losing gold means you still won silver, but you kind of, I don't know. It feels like going in the back door, right? You, you, you want it, but you want it because you lost that, that gold medal that you were pursuing. So it kind of speaks to the whole idea of what's, what's the better feeling? Like what sticks with you longer? Is it more fun to win or is it more difficult to lose? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I lost two gold medals, the world championships. I won a gold medal at the um, under 17 or sorry, under 18. And then under 17, I lost gold in the final, in the finals to Russia. And then I won a bronze. So yeah, it's a lot of different. I think winning bronze is, is a way better feeling than, than losing 
gold. Sometimes it doesn't even, like the whole night you're just miserable because you just don't, you know, you don't want to accept that you just lost a, a hockey game. So I feel like, I think I've, I think we won every single game um, and, and going into the final game, those two world championships and that um, um, under, under 17. So I never really lost a round Robin game. Um, and then you lose the final and you're just, it's just so, it takes, takes all your fun away that you've been winning and enjoying this moment for the whole, for a whole month, month and a half that you've been together as a team. And then all of a sudden you, know, you lose one game and, and you're done. So yeah, it, it's a tough feeling. I'll tell you. If we can go back to 03 for a second, because a lot of people may not have been around during that championship run. I'm curious what it was like coming back to the city as champions when that parade's happening and the city and the region is going absolutely bananas. Yeah, it was, it was really cool. I mean, you know, winning, winning the, the championship at home was, was really, was a really awesome feeling. And then them, then you're going and coming back they don't know if you're coming back with hardware. They don't know if you're going to. So um, as we came back, we didn't really know what to expect. Right. And then coming home and seeing that many people come out for the parade and, and seeing all the support from, from the Kitchener fans. And, and it's, it was, it was great, especially at that age. Uh, um, we weren't expecting that. And um, you know, uh, it was, it was my first, uh, first parade. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it was great. I mean, we had one. We won a championship in Bern, and we had one as well. Um, I think there was probably like forty or fifty thousand people there. So that was a little bit. That was a little bit more. But um, I think the whole parade that they did, where you go down the the street, it was it was a really cool experience. And especially at that age, you're only nineteen years old. Um, you're you're wanting more parades for the rest of your life. You're, you just want to keep winning. So, um, you know, special moment for sure. All right. I have to ask another question about that championship season. And I'm going to admit right now, it's going to put you on the spot a little bit, but we've heard it told through other eyes. And in 2003, let's face it, there wasn't quite the same level of media coverage. So the story kind of came out in little dribs and drabs, and we've heard different versions of it. But since you were at the center of it, I'm going to ask you about it right now, because you and George Halkidis mysteriously ended up missing a few games. You were being punished by your head coach. Do you want to tell us why? Uh, that, was a, <laughs> that was so tough. Uh, so long ago that uh, we're not going to go into that. <laughs> we just we were kids being kids and. That was probably it. Was, it was obviously a mistake from us, and we uh, we, we we said it. We we addressed it, it to the team, and um, uh, everyone right away forgave us as as players. And they were just, you guys are are great. You just had one lapse in judgment for two seconds. So it was, uh, and we just went home and thought about it, and and then obviously came back with a, with. A, even more peed off and with more of a vengeance and finished off the season. Well, so we were, uh, we were really, we wanted to win the moral cup big time and, and we didn't want anything to be um, a distraction. So, you know, uh, took our wounds and, and uh, you know, missed a few games and 
there's nothing that could piss me more off than missing uh, a hockey game. So um, definitely did the, the, the right thing by sitting me out. And then that we came back even more with a vengeance. It tells you something about how serious Pete was. He wasn't afraid to, to make an example of a star player. Oh, hundred uh, percent. I think uh, for him uh, to sit players and, um, you know, to not think about anybody else besides the team. Not, he didn't care about what anybody else thought. He was going to do the right thing and, and uh, you know, t- teach uh, teach uh, young guys a lesson. And it worked, I think, uh, you know, worked uh, for, for us as a, as a team, but it also worked for us as, as human beings and as, uh, as kids growing up uh, to learn a lesson, a valuable lesson, and, and to, to move on and, and, and to be a professional. We know Spotter was quite the prankster. <laughs> uh, were you ever pranked by spotter or do you remember a good one uh not re- I, he would come in and just just rip on people like joking wise um and just there was no comebacks you know i just it was one it was to the point where you're just like i don't even know what to say anymore like you just you got me so good that i just have nothing left so um i think one of the one time he told a joke to somebody but it was one of those jokes that are just like it's not there's zero funny in it he just wanted to see if you're gonna laugh and i didn't bite and a couple other guys didn't bite but one guy just bit and started laughing like crazy and he's like well what's what's the funny what's the funny part of the joke and the guy was like i I don't know so he just was so he was testing him and he, he failed miserably <laughs> and he, uh, and I think he's just, now he's like, okay, now I know I like who to, who to tell a joke to, cause he's going to laugh every single time. So, um, yeah, that was, that was spotter. I think it's still is spotter. There's no question. <laughs> oh yeah. So from that success and climbing that mountain in the Ontario hockey league, winning that Memorial cup as captain of the Kitchener Rangers, uh, a second rounder to the show with the Buffalo Sabres. What was your welcome to the NHL moment? Uh, welcome to the NHL. I think, um, you know, your first few games, you're just kind of like it's a blur and things are going by and you're, you're just trying to survive out there basically. And I think once I scored my first goal, and cemented myself as okay now I scored a goal because that was my job was to score goals and, and other guys might be fighting and other guys might have different different things body check or whatever maybe that was they're welcome to NHL they hit some guy or got hit or whatnot but for me I think it was was scoring my first goal um and kind of celebrating in the corner and um being not knowing what to do. I didn't even know how to celebrate. I was just kind of skating around like, Oh, what do I do now? So, but it, it was just a, it was such a good feeling. Now you're on the score sheet. Now you're, you're trying to help your team win games. You're part of the game. So I felt like scoring my, my first goal was like, this is, this is so cool and so surreal that I've been dreaming about this moment for my entire life. And it's finally happened. So I think that was my welcome to NHL moment. When you were sent down to Rochester after the lockout, I'm assuming that was the time Soupy was there because you started off the, your time in Rochester with 20 points in eight games, <laughs> which is pretty astronomical. Did you go down there with the purpose of sending a message to the show that, hey, I don't belong here? A yeah, funny story. It was actually 20 points in seven games. And, and then I got, I got called up after a five-point night in uh, Toronto and I was like, okay, well, I'm called up. This is, I'm going up there to prove a point. And they said, 
so I took my equipment home, dried it in the bathtub, did the, did the old thing. And they said, we're going to, we're sending you flight itinerary in the morning. So I was waiting, I was waiting, just waking up early and sitting in my, finally called the PR people. Like, hey, uh, when am I, when am I getting called up? They're like, well, we have a player that took a shot in the ankle. He might play tonight. So you might not get called up. So I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so it was one of those where I'm like, how can I prove myself any more than I've already done? Right. So then, uh, and then I finally get a call in the afternoon saying, I'm not, I'm not getting called up to meet the team. And I think it was Long Island. And then, you know, my, then I, called my agent my agent went bananas and it was one of, it was just one of those where and he was and he didn't want me to go play so I had to go play that night so I had to grab my equipment and this is before like uh, social media or anything so I walked through the doors with my equipment my sticks and it's like what are you doing here <laughs> like, didn't you just get called up and then I was just sour I'm like I'm not I'm, I'm not getting called up and then all the guys were like oh no so like I'm throwing my equipment just putting on a show I guess or whatever just young young kid pissed off so and then uh played the game and that's that's where i played my eighth game that game and that was my last game i, I played terrible probably and was just thinking about not getting called up the whole time so um you know it just goes to show you like you never know what's gonna happen right so um but i should i should have just tried to keep keep my head and nose to the grindstone and work hard but um, you know, that's, uh, it a tough story. And, and I think I'll always remember that, um, is, is the disappointment of getting called up and sent down in the same day and not even being able to prove myself. But, um, I knew right when I got my chance that I have one chance to go up there and I'm going to try to prove as much as I can. So, um, as soon as I went up the next game, I try to give it hundred percent for the rest of my career up in the NHL. So, yeah, those are learning moments that you do, ups and downs as a, as a hockey player, and everyone goes through them, and, and uh, you know, it's part of being a, a professional athlete. I love hearing that stuff now, Derek, when you look back on it 15 or so years later, but in the moment, that's got to be really tough. What would you tell a young hockey player today who's coming out of junior with all kinds of skill and all kinds of accolades, much like you, about adjusting to the pro game and maybe adjusting mentally as well as physically and on the ice yeah i mean uh, the physically on the ice is, is pretty pretty obvious you'll you'll know where you're at as, as a player you're you know not fast enough or not strong enough you can work on those physical attributes in the summertime but the mental part of it is is the really hard um because for me i played 49 games and then got sent i played all 49 games i got called up played 49 straight games got sent down um to uh the minors for the playoffs which is completely fine and we lost in the conference finals and we had a great run and and whatnot and and then the next year was the lockout so for me the the mental part of that is i have to go get go play in the, in the minors again um and i don't even have a chance to play in the nhl and then coming out of the minor that my third season um thinking i'm going to start up in the nhl but they have I had a bunch of guys on one ways and they had no spot for me. So I get sent down again. So that, that was, that was tough. Cause you know, it's my, now my third year and I have, I've only played 49 NHL games because of the lockout and the first season. So, um, and then I get sent down again. So I could have easily have, 
just said, you know, screw this team, screw this, whatever, I'm not playing, blah, blah. but I said, I'm just going to go down there and light, light the lamp like no other. And then I, I scored 20 points in seven games. So I think that was the best streak I've ever been on my entire life. So, and, but I was playing with Gregory Campbell. So obviously, uh, <laughs> so obviously I'm going to put up points because Supi knows where I'm going to be at all moments of the time. So, uh, and then we, uh, and then we both kind of got called up and that was our last uh, stint in, in the minors. So uh, yeah, it goes to show you, I would say to a young guy, like you never know, like it, it could take you three, it could take you four, it could take you five years, but if you keep working at it, keep working hard and, and keep trying to get better every day and, and you never know what can happen. And um, yeah, trusting yourself, I would say that was, that was the biggest thing, trusting your abilities and, and trusting yourself as a player. Um, Cause I think once you lose confidence, then it's, it's really hard to get it back. So keep your, the, your confidence, your whole career and, and you'll do great things. Um, when you were in Dallas, you got to play with Yager. What was he like? It was almost surreal playing with Yager. He's just a guy that you watch growing up and um, dominating the league for, for that many years. And I mean, still playing now, which is kind of crazy to me. And um, he, uh, you know, he was so professional where he'd come to the rank early and work out and stay longer and work out and come back at night and work out. And he kept himself in, in peak physical shape, but uh, he had his, he had his ways. He, he knew like, you know, sometimes he didn't understand the drill and I was his line mate and he'd be like, I'm not doing this drill. I don't understand. <laughs> so he would just stick handle in neutral zone work on his game. And I'm like, yeah, but it's a full line drill. <laughs> we need three guys, <laughs> you know, like, so, uh, it, you know, it was sometimes it was, it was a little bit, it was funny the, the way he, he did, did things. So he had his, he had his things that he did, he's done forever. Um, you know, I think he would bring his sticks back on game days and, back to the back to the room and tape them and get them ready and um through the afternoon as opposed to everyone would just go and eat and sleep you know so he was he was very i'll tell you what that guy loves hockey he, he loves the game of hockey he loves scoring goals he loves winning hockey games so you know he was a great guy to have on our team and we we enjoyed it in a similar vein do you remember the face-off you won from mario lemieux yeah <laughs> I do. I remember him standing straight up, not caring about winning the draw. And I was hunched over wanting to snap it back as hard as I could. And I, I, I came across so hard and he was looking at me like, what are you doing, kid? Like, <laughs> you could take the draw, man. Like, I, you know, he was, uh, he was like, don't worry, I'll get the puck back later and score a goal anyway. So, um, you know, he was, it was, for me, it was the moment. I, I think that was the only face off I ever took against him. So I was, so excited to, to take a face-off against Mario. I'm going to say I can beat I beat Mario Lemieux in a face-off because obviously I couldn't beat him anything else. And, uh, you know, he was such a special hockey player and uh, growing up and speaking French and watching him play. He's just a good mentor and great hockey player and, and he's probably one of the best that's ever played the game for sure. Was he the best player you ever played with or against? Uh, I mean, I played against them really late. Like I played when I, when I played against some guys, uh, like Mark Messier and, and, um, uh, Mario Lemieux and guys like that, they're like, they were towards the end of their career. Um, so it's, it's hard to say like Mario and his prime different story. Um, 
it's yeah, like it's it's really hard. It's really hard to to, to judge a guy when he's you know his. I think that was his last season, um, and he came back from from cancer and everything. So um, before all that ever happened, yeah, he's probably he's probably the best player to ever play. Um, I never played against Wayne Gretzky, but I'm sure he would have been crazy uh, to play against. That would be so surreal. And, um, you know, even kids coming up now seeing playing against Crosby's and, and kids 10 years from now playing against McDavid, you know, they're going to be like growing up watching him play and, and play finally get to be a chance to play against them is, is pretty surreal. You idolized Forsberg as a young hockey player. You had a chance to play against him. What was that like for you? Yeah, we had uh, my me, Chris Drury, and Mike Greer's job in the playoffs, the first round against Philly, is to check uh, Peter Forsberg. Peter Forsberg, Mike Knubel, and uh, who's the third? Gagne, Simone Gagne. So we were like, well, that's a pretty big task. And this was my first playoffs, my third. Uh, that was the third, my third year in the league. And, or third pro season and to, to play against him was was pretty was was amazing but uh to be able to check him and to be able to try to stop him from scoring was 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 pretty awesome as well as trying to get under his skin a little bit you know but he was such a big strong like power forward that you know getting in his way he just run you over so um yeah that was fun and we i mean we won the the series and and uh, so we did our job, and, and yeah, that was a fun, uh, fun experience to try to check him for sure. You went overseas, and as you mentioned, won a championship with Burn. You scored the championship-winning goal. Uh, what was your time like over there? Yeah, that was it. Was awesome. I think um, at the start, you don't know what to expect because um, I played in Burn before in the World Championship, so I knew what the, the town was like, and I knew everything about Switzerland. Switzerland's such a beautiful place, and. Uh, but I didn't know much about the league and, uh, you know, to go there and, and see how good the, the, the players are and, and to uh, be welcomed by that team. And we had such a great bunch of guys and, and um, to go out and, and, and win the championship. We had so many injuries, ups and downs all year and, and to go out and win it. Uh, and then the score of the, the game winner at the end was just, was just a great feeling. And, we, we all went to Bar. our team went all to Barcelona. We had a team trip at the end of the season. We all went to Barcelona to celebrate. So, you know, it was, it was just a great, great experience. And um, I was telling people, if you ever had a chance to, you know, at the end of your career to prolong it for a few years overseas, it's just, a, you know, it's a great way to cap your, your, your um, careers off and, and families do it all the time and they love it. And it's a great experience for, for kids and wives and families and, and, uh, you know, to be, um, to be part of a, a different team and organizations, they, they really wel- welcome, um, Canadian and, and, and American and, and, um, players from all over, um, with open arms. When you talk about the injuries that the team had and the ups and downs, it just makes me think back on, on your career again, Derek. And it was relatively early on. I know you're still in Buffalo. I think it was, I think it was lower body, but you missed a chunk of time. Either way, how how many times were you out there trying to battle through something at less than a hundred percent? Well, yeah, that that really that was tough. It was I I played. I was finally playing at a really good level in the NHL. I had like maybe 
three good seasons in a row. And then uh, I was really trying to like ramp my game up and uh, I had a great start. And I think I had a point a game that year. And, and then I got pushed from behind in the boards and I uh, severed my quad tendon. So the tendon like tore. So they had to go in and, and sew it back up and had to be in a mobilizer for eight weeks. I wasn't able to move my leg. So that was tough because I've never been hurt before, especially I never had surgery or never had anything um, longer than two games or something. So um, it was, it was being sidelined really sucked. And then, uh, but I worked, worked through it, worked my way up. And um, I was going to, cause we had the first round in playoffs against Philly. And I was, if we won the series, I was going to start the second round and I got hurt um, after Christmas. So that would have only been like four, four and a half months recovery until playing, which is if you put two months in a mobilizer, um, two months back playing a playoff game is pretty tough. So then we had a few injuries in game six. So I was just like, all right, I'm going, I'm playing, let's go. And I played game seven, but I wasn't very effective or very, very good. And I mean, we lost, we lost game seven. So that was kind of, kind of brutal, but um, it gave me a little bit of motivation going into the next year. So um, I went into the next season and then I kind of hurt myself in um, the summertime working out. I hurt a disc in my back. And then that summer, my shoulder came out in training camp. So I had, it was, so it just kind of snowed. So then I had um, shoulder uh, surgery that off season. So I played the whole season with uh, with a bad shoulder, and then I had off off season shoulder surgery. So it just kind of was one of those things that just uh, it was like two three injuries in a row. So I'm working on my disc and I'm working on my shoulder and then like working on my leg. So it just you just kind of compound injuries and it's just it's really tough to come back from and you're doing as, as best as you can to to be a professional and come back from these injuries and sometimes it just um your body just says no so um going over to europe was towards the end of my career was tough playing because so physical and, and everything going over to europe and playing and and playing less games and getting healthy and um we get a little more time off over there you get just some more breaks. So, um, you know, that, that definitely was, was a lot easier on the body as opposed to grinding out 82, uh, NHL games with, with playoffs. So, um, I say there's a lot of players that are not hundred percent and it's hard. It's, it's definitely hard, but because you want to play, you want to help your team out. Um, you want to perform or, or even guys who you want, they want to stay in the league. So, um, it's, uh, it's, it's hard not to play at hundred percent. What was the craziest thing you saw in your time in the KHL? Craziest? Uh, or just any good story, really? Any good story. Um, I don't know. That's a tough question. I think uh, it was – I thought it was pretty, pretty good. Um, overall, I think, you know, everyone was really nice. And, I, you know, I felt – I felt like it was, it was very professional league. It was ran very professionally. So, so I didn't really have that many crazy stories, but one, the one thing, the one story was, was really weird was I got, um, so I was with uh, team Canada at the Deutschland cup 
and we're playing this um, tournament mid-season. They always have these um, international kind of tournaments to prepare for the world championships and everything. And I was playing with, with Team Canada. And right before the game, uh, we were going to um, pregame meal. And Paul Shahura, um, who played in Tampa, played in the NHL a little bit. And he was playing in Chilibinsk. And he's like, Roisy, I think you got traded to our team. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he's like, man, I don't know. My PR guy just called me, said, tell Roisy, welcome to the team. And ask him what number he wants. And I was like, wait. So I call my agent, who's a Russian agent. So we had our agency, Octagon, had agencies they work with in Russia. Um, and um, so I talked to, like, I finally get a hold of him because it took me forever. And he's like, oh, yeah, 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 you got traded. <laughs> so I was like, wait, what? what's going on right now? So then the team calls me and they say, after the turn, we want you guys to come direct. We want you to come directly with Paul to chill events because we got a game that night so, so we landed like six or seven in the morning or whatever but we had to play so we're coming from dirt germany and um i was like well I, man i have, don't even have a jacket with me because it's warm here in germany and it's minus 20 over there in siberia so um it was that was that was interesting because um, I had my wife with me at the time and I was like she's like what well, she got to go more should she come directly there all my stuff's in Omsk right so then I had to uh she had to fly to Omsk take the Trans-Siberian train jam it full of our stuff take the train to uh to Chilibinsk overnight and so I had to play the game that night and then pick her up the train so it was it was a tough, uh, tough for us. And then I got there and all my, all my credit cards and bank was all opened up and ready to go with my name on it and everything. And I kind of found, found that it was pretty weird because I never even poked my head in the bank. All of a sudden I got all these credit cards and, and a, a bank uh, opened and it was a non-sanctioned bank um, in Canada and the U.S. So uh, we had to take our money and transfer it to Spearbank, which we can then transfer it overseas. So it was like little things like that. Those that like happen all the time. And uh, on the way home, we got, when we picked up my wife, we got in a little fender bender and it was just kind of like compounding stuff. It was, just, and then the guy just gets out, gives him cash. So sorry, I, you know, hit some ice and hit you and just gave him cash. And our driver, we drove away and I'm just like, she's like, what is happening right now? <laughs> like, I'm like, man, I don't like, this is, like the last two days have been crazy right now. So it was, but, uh, you know, all in all, great experience. I, I think, yeah, I, I didn't want to be that guy. Like, what if I went away to Russia or, you know, what if this wasn't for me? So we just said, we decided let's just go. And that way there's no what ifs. And, and then, uh, but I, overall, I thought I had great experience and, you know, look, some stories like that to tell. And, uh, you know, now we have no, uh, no regrets or anything. So. That's absolutely fantastic. And maybe your wife deserves one of those medals on the shelf behind you because oh, come yeah. on, Roisy. <laughs> we, weren't, we weren't married at the time. So that kind of pushed it over the edge. No absolutely. Yeah. No choice it. after that. Eh? There's a ring out. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Before Popper has his inevitable last question, I want to get one more in and I want to take it back to Buffalo because I'm going to be honest. And in my adult life, I have poked fun at the city from time to time. However, uh, I, I don't think there is a more passionate fan base in all of sport, hockey, football, you name it. 
what was it like playing for those fans in Buffalo? I thought it was, I thought it was an amazing experience. Uh, I loved it. I loved um, every experience, every, like uh, everything about it. I thought the city was great. The atmospheres were great. Um, I think what happened was at the start, like we don't have, we don't, we're not the, we're not the bills in, in Buffalo. Right. So they get, um, even if they're winning or losing, they still would pack the house. Right. As opposed to my first year in the, uh, in the league, we, they weren't very good, um, before that, but then they had those early cup runs, um, in the late nineties, I want to say, or mid nineties. And then they, and then they had a couple of bad, bad seasons in a row, didn't make the playoffs and whatever. And then I think they made that Drury trade. They picked up Briere. They, you know, they started making some moves. They made some great um, trades and some great draft picks. You know, Ryan Miller, Palmville, Gossett, all these, all these guys, Vanek. So it kind of like everything started to build. And then it, it seemed like every game, it seemed like there was more and more and more fans. And, and it was just starting to build towards something. And it, it started getting so crazy that, uh, we couldn't even go to like pregame meals. Like we, they would, we'd have to like, um, they would give us a car to the garage and we'd have to drive underneath to go eat. Uh, Cause it was just too many, too many fans to sign on. We'd be there for, you know, hours and hours signing autographs for, you know, 5,000 people outside the restaurant. So, um, it was such a cool experience and everyone was so like, so nice. And, um, it seemed like a small, big community, but small at the same time because everyone um, knew each other and everyone was, was very respectful and nice. And, and I think, you know, losing in the conference finals like two years in a row, that kind of was, wasn't, wasn't fun because we knew like uh, we wanted to really give back to City of Buffalo for them being such great fans and, and uh, you know, such nice people and, and uh, just hardworking uh, uh blue collar type people that that'll, that'll do anything for, for their sports teams. And, and, you know, they, they stick, they stick through it. And, you know, they haven't, I think this is the longest drought. They haven't made the playoffs in NHL history. I think I, I, I read something. So um, I think they're going to have to do something to turn around that organization. But when they turn around um, that arena is going to be full again and, and full of life. And, and um, you know, I'm excited for that day because, um, the fans really deserve it. I actually have, <clears throat> excuse me, two quick questions for you. And I know first, uh, one, I can't believe Mike didn't ask you, but you played with Jay McKee who used to coach here. We actually had him on this podcast right over there. Actually. Um, do you have a good cheese story for us? Because after the mic got turned off, he told us some beauties. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you have a good cheese story. Oh, cheese. Yeah. He's uh man. He's, he actually asked me like uh, if I wanted to help coach in, in Kitchener. Um, but at the time I was still playing, I think I was thought five years or five or six years left in me until I retired. So I had to obviously say no, but he's, um, geez, he was, he was like um, an unbelievable guy, but also just a great teammate. And, such a warrior i've never seen a guy block so many like he actually i never seen anybody enjoy blocking shots as much as this guy had like he would actually block shots and practice like go out and block like fully put his leg out and kick save a puck in practice and you're just like hey man just let me get one shot through but like he had the 
the whitest shin pads of all time. And he had these big shop blockers on his feet. And um, he's such a, that's a great guy that uh, he, for, for, for him to, to have him on your hockey team was, was unbelievable. And for him to miss that game seven because of a staff infection, that was so tough for us as a team. It was such a big blow. We already had, I think, 4D out of the lineup, and then we lost him. So it was just obviously a huge blow, but he's just a great leader that, that we needed, that presence for game seven. All right, so that's a great segue to my second question because you mentioned that you were just in Kitchener for the top prospects game. I spoke with Mike McKenzie before this uh, podcast, and he said you were great and lots of good stories. He also mentioned that, you know, Nancy and Huxley might want to get you out of the house because, you know, you're at home now, a new father. I'm curious if coaching, maybe in the future and maybe around Waterloo, Cambridge, somewhere in between those two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a good experience. I thought uh, I kind of wanted to go soak it up, and, and uh, the guys really let me in the, the, the room with, you know, with Merles and, and uh, with Wides and those guys, and then just to be – just kind of be a part of that the whole – kind of a, in the day of a life of a coach was, was really, was really cool to see, you know, what happens behind the scenes. Cause obviously you played so much that you're always like, Oh, if I was a coach, I would do this or why didn't the coach do that? Or, and then you get the other side of it and you're like, you know what? Like it's a lot harder than it looks. You know? So it's, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a great experience and uh, I don't know if I'll be coaching. We'll see, but uh I think um, to have the other side of, of the of the spectrum, and and now to know that it's harder than it looks, um, maybe players will, will take it easy and stop chirping coaches and behind their backs <laughs> in the locker room, and because uh, it is it is a it is a tough job, and there's so much so many moving parts that that as a player you're just focused on your one thing. What do I got to do when I get on the ice? As a sports coach, you got to kind of um, take in everything and all the, all the information you're getting and then project um, what you think you should do as a team to win the hockey. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was a cool experience. I, I enjoyed it. You know, Roycey, if something like that were to come to pass, they'd probably throw another parade for you in this town, just so you know. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until you lost your first game. Other than that, it'll be fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you lose your first game. All right. Fire him. Get him out of here. <laughs> I'm curious. I know to add one more. I'm just curious. When we, in the past, everyone likes to talk about the greatest Ranger of all time. When your name's mentioned in that conversation, what do you think about? Yeah, that, you know, it's such an honor. I think, uh, you know, coming in as a 16 year old and trying to make my, my mark, I, I didn't, I was not expecting to, you know, lead the team in scoring my first year. And, and, and then after that, then expectations are so high that I was, you know, I had, had to live up to them. And I obviously wanted to, um, that, you know, that's my job is to, to score goals and set up plays. And like, um, my, my job wasn't to hit and fight guys, but, um, so I knew I was at some point going to do it. And, and, um, I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't, well, I was hoping it would happen early, but I, it, I couldn't have pictured a better season to start, but obviously we had, it's, it's harder when you're going on a really, really good team. And let's say you're a 16 year old coming in on a them cup team. It's, it, you know, it's hard to make uh, that much of an impact as opposed to 
playing on a team that you know with you get more ice time you get more more looks more shots uh you, you get a chance to improve yourself and and i always figured if if we lost um i always put it on my shoulders it's, it was because i didn't play well enough or because um you know um i wasn't prepared enough or whatever so i'd, I'd rather take the blunt of anything and, and and then next game i i step up a little bit more and play play even better so that was my the way i approach things and and um you know, to be looked at as as one of the one of the best and um it's it's pretty pretty uh pretty amazing that there's so many good hockey players that went through that that system and um even to be recognized and put in some of those names is is it's great and well, when you put an effort like that in, it uh, it comes across as very well-deserved to be in those conversations. This has been great to catch up with you. Thanks a, a million for making the time for us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Had a blast. Appreciate it. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.